All right, so in our press series, we have been seeing that God is in control of all things, even suffering, even evil. As Dr. R.C. Sproul used to say, there is no maverick molecule outside of God's control in this universe. We have seen this in the life of Joseph. We've seen this in the life of Naomi and in Ruth and in Job. Though God is in control of all things, this does not mean that our God authored evil and suffering. Yet, and we have to struggle through this, yet he allows evil and suffering to exist. God uses evil and suffering for his highest glory and our deepest good. And once again, we have seen this in the life of Joseph and in Naomi and in Ruth and in Job. But the greatest demonstration of this, that God uses evil and suffering towards his highest glory and our deepest good, we see the greatest demonstration of this in our Lord Jesus himself, the Son of God, who took on flesh to take headfirst and headlong evil and suffering. Throughout the series, we have thought about the idea that suffering is a fire, right? And fire has many qualities. And most recently, we saw that on full display at our church bonfire, right? And we also see what fire does to people. But fire has many qualities. Fire is destructive, is it not? You leave a small fire unattended, and it can grow and destroy everything. Fire can also be restorative, right? If you think about a farmer, now, a little secret in our household, we love watching The Pioneer Woman, right? And The Pioneer Woman has these great cutscenes to her husband, who is a cattleman, has all of this like land that he tends to, and, and all the cows, and all the horses. But one of the things that he would often do, I forget what time of the year it is, but he burns his land time and time again, because it removes of a bunch of excess that's not needed. It nutrients the soil, and then be able to grow better grass for the cows and then rinse and repeat. Fire is restorative. Doctors also use fire, do they not? The very idea of the cauterization of wounds carries this idea that you're hurting, you're in pain, and fire must touch you before healing can take place. You must be hurt before you can be healed medically, right? But between both of these purposes and qualities about fire, which one do you think our enemy, Satan himself, wants to use in your life? Satan wants to use fire to accomplish his mission of destruction, the destruction of humanity that he began with Adam and Eve. God uses suffering in contrast to accomplish his mission, which isn't your destruction, but your restoration. And that implies that you come into this world not whole. There is something broken in you and in me as we come into this world. Now, I want to share with you a powerful verse that has been really close to my heart as I've been wrestling over the years with my own suffering. Since my mom passed away, I've meditated on Lamentations 3. I'm not, I'm, this isn't hyperbole, like probably a thousand times. It's one of the verses, if you ever see me open up my Bible before I come up on stage. What am I doing? I am reading through Lamentations 3 for my own soul before I come up here. And I want to share with you two verses from it. It's Lamentations 3, verses 32 and 33, where Jeremiah says, 
that if he causes grief, he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. But listen to this part. He does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. And let me say that verse one more time. He does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. What we see is that in your sorrows and my sorrows, in the ultimate sense, they are caused by God. But remember, causation does not necessitate origination. The agency of our sorrows may come by moral evil, natural evil, or cosmic evil. But first, it passed through the fatherly, providential, and tender hands of God. And Jeremiah tells us, as he is imprisoned, beaten by people in Jerusalem, and Babylon ransacking it, that God does not willingly afflict us. He doesn't willingly grieve us. But we have to remember that the cost of that was that he willingly inflicted agony and sorrow upon the Lord Jesus, right? In our griefs, this verse promises that God has compassion and not just loving kindness, but abundant loving kindness. So we learn this about God, and you need this for your theology of suffering. God does not willingly afflict or grieve you being made in his image. You have to get that. He does not willingly let suffering and evil come your way. I have deep respect for a woman whose name is Joni Erickson Tata. Have you ever heard of her? I come to know of her through John Piper's ministry out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, he has he has relied on her to talk about the relationship between suffering and the sovereignty of God throughout his ministry. I have mad respect for the woman. When she was 16 years old, she was involved in an accident. She was diving into like a pond or a lake. She hit the back of her head on the wooden dock, and she lost control of her body. She's been a quadriplegic since her teenage years. Now, can you imagine a 16-year-old going through high school, right? And one day, full function of your body, and the next day, not. In addition to that, Joni has struggled through several bouts of cancer. And despite all of that, she has fought and advocated for the rights of people with disabilities in our country since she was an adult. Honestly, I'm not quite sure where this country would be in terms of ADA if it was not for Joni Erickson Tata. It doesn't get enough news time, but it's true. I want to read a quote to you from Joni. She says, actually she attributes this to her husband, 10 words that radically changed her life. She says that God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. I think that needs to sit. I think first you need to think through Joni's sufferings, loss of her body control since she was 16 years old, add on to that bouts of cancer after bouts of cancer. And she believes, because I believe it's biblical, that God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Make no mistake, heritage. God hates evil. God hates suffering. And he does not willingly afflict us, whether it's Joni or you or me. Yet God still permits suffering and evil to come our way. 
all of this points, your sufferings, my sufferings, Joseph's suffering, Ruth, Naomi, Job, all of our evil and suffering that we have committed and have been committed against us are all meant to point to the greatest evil, the greatest suffering, that someone perfect and sinless, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent took on the penalty and took on ultimate evil and ultimate suffering on the cross. Why? Because God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And that's what today is about. Let's get to our proposition. What I pray that you see, Holy Spirit, I pray you would move your people to experience this. This is what I pray for you. That you can rejoice when faith is tested because salvation is guaranteed by God's mercy at the expense of Jesus. Joni is right. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And we have seen this time and time again in our press series, in Joseph, in Naomi, in Ruth, in Job, all of the evil and all the suffering that they have experienced, it points us to Jesus. God who takes on flesh to fully deal with our suffering. So we ask, what is it that God loves to accomplish? What is it that God will permit evil and suffering to come our way, and most importantly, to come his son's way? What is it that he loves so much that a father would abandon a son and in his time of greatest need? And the answer is your joy in salvation. That's Peter's response to this. Remember, the nature of pain has the capacity to diminish or destroy your enjoyment. When you're in pain, when you're sick, food doesn't taste the same, right? You don't want to eat when you're sick. And when you're lovesick, you definitely don't want to eat, right? When you're emotionally drained, for our joy, Jesus became our grief. So today, we're going to see that our salvation is guaranteed because God withheld mercy from Jesus. Our joy is at the expense of Jesus. And we're going to see that suffering actually reveals, this is one of the 10,000 reasons, suffering actually reveals what your functional God is. You may be sitting, I would say, in a pew, but in a chair with a cover on it today, doing the motions of church, doing the motions of religion, but your functional God may actually be something else. And God allows and permits what he hates, suffering, to be able to show you what your actual functional God is, whether it's his son or something else. And then finally, in our application, we're going to see, therefore, what our suffering says about us. Ready to dive in? All right, let's do it. Point one, you're going to see that salvation is secure, it's guaranteed, because Jesus suffered. He actually took the, the final, the ultimate death blow out of evil and suffering for you by taking it on himself. So the church, I believe, at all times and at all places should be continually reforming and clarifying what it means to be a Christian for its people. You're going to experience this, God willing, when I get to year 10 of ministry here and beyond, we are going to reform and we're going to clarify what it means to be a Christian. 
What is the gospel? What is the church? What is the mission of this church? Why it still exists from 1950 when we get to its 75th year of ministry and 10 years of pastoral preaching. That's what we're going to be doing. Verse 3 answers how anyone becomes a Christian in the first place because on your own, you are never going to want Jesus. Your spouse can drag you to church every Sunday and every Wednesday, and on your own, you're never going to want Jesus. It must be a work of God's mercy. We call this election. Your natural heart doesn't want God as God. So God doesn't leave you. He has mercy, and he gives you a new heart, and along with that, new wants, new desires. So let's take a look at verse 3. Peter says, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter tells us, how does anybody become a Christian? They're born again. This sounds like Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3, right? The Greek word for born again is literally our English word genesis. Like legit, it's genesis. It's the root genesis. Peter claims that for anybody to be a Christian, you must have a second genesis. You've already had a first genesis. You've already had a literal, natural, physical beginning. But to be a Christian, that is not enough. You are not born the first time into Christianity. A Christian must be born a second time, a second genesis, or a deuterogenesis. At your first birth, you came into this world physically alive, but spiritually dead. That's every single human being who has ever existed. Because of Adam and Eve, you were born spiritually dead on a rival, with a dead desire for God, his word, his character, his promises, and his presence. That's everybody. But at your second birth, or your spiritual birth, though your body is failing, you become spiritually alive. And no matter your age in this room today, you have to acknowledge this. There is a law of science that's called entropy. There's a reason why hot coffee becomes cold. Entropy, this world, everything in it is spiraling down, not up. It's de-progressive, not progressive. And we affirm this in the gospel, that though we are physically alive, we're actually physically dying moment by moment. But uniquely, the Christian is becoming alive again. And only the Christian experiences this. But the question we have to ask is, how does anybody ever come to experience this in the first place? And Peter says, it's by God's great mercy. And you can think about Peter's context to understand why he believed it's mercy. I mean, Peter made some grand claims in his life, right? Jesus forbid, I'll always follow you. I'll follow you to the death, right? You're the son of God. You're the Christ. I believe in you. Eh, I'm going to give up on you. Eh, I'll curse your name to people when it's inconvenient for me to honor you. Peter looks at his life and everything he has done wrong and all of his whack desires and his nature, it's like, it's got to be God's mercy. That's why I am where I am today. Which means his experience of reconciliation by the Sea of Galilee, 
It left an indelible impression upon his heart where it cemented for him that all of this life is by God's great mercy. You see, God would be just and righteous to leave Peter as he was, right? He would also be just to leave me how I was and also for you and where you were, causing evil, causing suffering in the lives of others. So how is God's mercy, which creates the second genesis in us, how is that experienced? Peter answers that in this verse. He says, a person is only born again. A person is only regenerated. That's the word that we use theologically through Jesus. And by experiencing his resurrection, Jesus had to die so you could live. And therefore, Jesus says, for those of you who really want life, you want to get something out of life, you too must die. Because Christians are the most right side up yet upside down way of thinking from this world. Because the way up is down. The way to life is to lose it. The way to become rich is to become poor. That's the gospel. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's genuine Christianity at all places and all times. Mercy and regeneration are experienced by a genuine Christian at the expense and the cost of Jesus' life. At the cross, God withheld mercy from Jesus, who actually deserved mercy more than anybody who has ever suffered, yet he withheld it. God turned his back. So God could have great mercy in your life. And I love the Greek word for great. It's mega in our language. Jesus had no mercy at the cross so you could get mega mercy. That's our God. That's Christianity. That is how serious he is about evil and suffering. You see, evil and suffering cannot go unaccountable. Evil and suffering must be dealt with. And this is what we affirm as Christians. There is no law enforcement. There is no judicial system. And there is no vigilante taking justice into your own hands that can adequately deal with evil and suffering. God must deal with it. And God dealt with evil by allowing Jesus to die so you can surely live. For salvation to be experienced, Jesus had to suffer. So let's talk about Jesus' suffering here. Because I fear that many professed Christians, especially in America, because we really do not suffer too much. We live incubated lives here in the West. So I fear that many Western Christians do not really think and feel through what actually happened to Jesus on the cross. Now, before we do this, remind you of two things. Tim Hughes wrote a song called Here I Am to Worship back in the early 2000s. There's a bridge that says, I will never know how much it cost to see my sin upon the cross. John Calvin, when he was writing his Institutes of the Christian Religion in Switzerland, Geneva, he began by saying that God is inexpressible, incomprehensible. Yet that shouldn't stop us, but there's a certain point where we actually have to stop because there's some things we cannot fully know about God. So, Disclaimer here, but let's think about what actually happened to Jesus on the cross. Because Jesus' suffering was more than what we typically think of it as just and only physical suffering. It's no less than that, but it's so much more than that. 
Yes, Jesus physically hung on a Roman cross. His body was literally and physically crucified. One of the most excruciating ways to die, forms of punishment that humanity has ever come up with. His body was nailed to wood. His body hung on nails, by nails, on a wooden cross until he gave up his spirit. But Jesus experienced more than physical suffering on the cross. Jesus experienced and he paid the cost of what ultimate evil and ultimate suffering would do to you. That's what we need to marinate for a moment in time. That experience was total. It was physical, and I'm not diminishing that. It was emotional, mental, and spiritual. You see, Jesus was taunted, and he was ridiculed on the cross. Fools spoke to him at the cross. If you're really the Son of God, come on down. Someone was hanging next to him and was ridiculing him. Jesus cried out to God, the Father, and received no response, no help, no aid. But there was darkness for hours to impress upon Jesus, you have been abandoned. The only way that ultimate evil and suffering could be destroyed is if someone powerful enough could take it on and live. And on the cross, Jesus is the one who took on ultimate evil and suffering. Jesus, the Father's beloved, was forsaken and abandoned so that you could have a second genesis, so you could experience mercy and so much more as Peter continues. Jesus suffered, died, and was resurrected for your salvation. Jesus suffered, died, and was resurrected so you can have not a dead hope, wishful thinking, throw a penny into a fountain, wish upon a star, but so you could have a living hope. And I want to contrast that for a moment with secular hope and a secular life. And I want to be emphatic and clear that if you are thinking that a secular life and secular ideologies is going to provide you anything better than Christianity, you need to think again. Because secularism provides you with a dead hope. There is nothing that a secular life offers you. Technology, sex, romance, alcohol, drugs, thrilling adventures on this planet. There is nothing that the secular life can offer you that can result in a living hope. can't happen. Evil and suffering are the greatest challenges to a secular life. It's not the greatest challenge to Christianity. There is real evil and real suffering in this world. And that necessitates, if there is real evil and real suffering, there must be real good. And there must be real truth. And there must be real power. Unless you're a true agnostic where everything is meaningless. And I don't think people who live secular lifestyles that live and breathe in this moment as if God does not exist, that they're in the presence of a holy God, I don't think they're actually genuinely secular. What it is is that they want to be God. They want to be in control of what they say, what they do at any given moment, and they push back against anybody who challenges that. The question we have to ask is, what answer 
does a secular life without Jesus provide that sufficiently settles in our soul what's going on with evil and suffering? What resolution does a life without Jesus provide? And I'm not talking about just being a bench warmer in this church, but a real experience of Jesus, genuine Christianity. What does this provide? Can law enforcement or a court of law or a vigilante fully and totally deal with evil and suffering and injustice? And the answer is no, absolutely not. Only God can fully and totally deal with it. And God dealt with it by exposing his son to evil at his expense for your joy. Jesus took on flesh and took on the cross to take on evil and suffering that you have caused and that you have experienced. Unlike any other religious leader or philosopher, Jesus is not dead. He is alive today because he is God and man. You see, Moses is dead. Therefore, we do not follow Old Testament law in its entirety. We don't put our hope in Moses because Moses is dead. We do not put our hope in Muhammad, whom Muslims say is the greatest fulfillment. He is the last, final, and greatest prophet. In him and in his writings, all of life makes sense. We say no, because Muhammad is dead. And we don't put our hope in a dead hope. And honestly, secularism, progressivism is dead. It doesn't take much in recent history to show us that life is not getting better, it is getting worse, and there's no amount of ingenuity, human ingenuity, that can conquer some of the issues that we face alone. We are not powerful enough. If there is no God, then there is no basis for anyone to believe that something is good or something is bad. Because as soon as you make that basis, this is good, this is bad, you become the basis of truth. You're the truth teller and the truth determiner. But that is deep down what we want. We are so individualistic. We want to be God. We push back against anything that looks like it. If there is no God, there's no basis for you to believe that love is good and murder is evil. Life just is. Life is meaningless. That's true agnosticism. And I would much rather us either say, I'm going all into Christianity and what God's mission is for me in Jesus, or to say, I will live an agnostic lifestyle. Those are the only two options. There really is real good, real truth, and you commit your life to it, and it's not your truth, but it's, there is no truth. There is no good, there is no evil, and you live as an agnostic. Putting your hope in a lifestyle that does not feature Jesus as center is a dead hope. The Christian's hope is a live hope because God the Father allowed his son to die and then live again. Resurrection. Let's get to verse 4. Peter continues and adds on. Verse 3 is the main idea. It's the foundation. That's why we spent so much time on it just now. Now let's keep going. Verse 4. This obtains an inheritance that's imperishable undefiled, and it won't fade away, and it's reserved in heaven for you. Because God is great in mercy, 
He gave us Jesus, showed him no mercy as he took on evil and suffering. Because Jesus took on evil and suffering, his death brings you life. His death becomes your living hope. That's what life in the second Genesis looks like. When evil and suffering finally takes your life, it's not the end. It's merely the beginning. Everything in this life is the first page of the prologue of what life is really about. Because Jesus took on evil and suffering, and because you are born again, because your hope is in Jesus, Peter says there is an inheritance waiting for you at the end. Why? Because the death and suffering of Jesus provides you with an eternal inheritance. He died, his life was cut short, so that your life would never be cut short. Jesus died to make you a part of his family, where he becomes your true elder brother, and his father becomes your father by adoption. This inheritance, because Jesus is God, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Verse 5, Peter adds on to this and also says that it's protected. So good. Secure, safe by the power of God through faith that's ready to be revealed in the eschaton in Greek. Salvation, regeneration, inheritance are protected and secured by the power of God all the way to the eschaton. It wasn't your mercy or your power that created new life in you. And it's not your mercy and your power that sustains you to the end. From start to finish, it's always God. Now remember, Christians are not dualists. Though dualism began in a region in the Middle East very close to Judaism and Christianity, Christians are not dualists. There's no good angel, bad angel on the shoulders speaking into us. God and Satan are not equally powerful, vying over your soul. That may make some good Hollywood TV shows and films, Maybe not, but it's unbiblical and it's not the gospel. As we are being reminded of in Kindred, Satan is a created being, right? And he's not made in the image of God. Only humanity is. So how powerful is God? The proof is Jesus, how powerful God is. Jesus on the cross took on ultimate evil, ultimate suffering, yet he still lives. Salvation from God's mercy all the way to your inheritance at the eschaton is secured because Jesus suffered, died, and rose again. A person's experience of the death of Jesus changes them. We call this regeneration. Now, no joke, Heritage. I had a person tell me about seven years ago, as I began laying some foundations for our church, that he would not be returning because I used terms like regeneration. But here, almost at the end of your nine, I say I rejoice in it. I rejoice in election. I rejoice in our reformed faith. And I rejoice in the terms of theology that have been laid out for us in the Bible. And it's not going to go away. Unless you say, Pastor, it's time for you to move on. We love the idea of regeneration in the Bible. And our regeneration is only confirmed by suffering. Let's get to our second point. Suffering proves genuine faith 
and love for Jesus. It proves genuine Christianity, or what we call nominalism. You're just a Christian in name only because it's convenient and it's safe for you to be able to say it in America. You're not going to get killed for saying, I'm a Christian. You may get unfriended. But honestly, they won't unfriend you because they don't see any difference between you as a nominal Christian and what a real Christian is. You live just like them, talk just like them. Because Jesus did not keep himself from evil and suffering, but took it at the cross, the result is you can trust in him. You can trust in him when suffering and sorrow comes your way. Because as a Christian, the only thing that suffering can do is accomplish God's plan for your life, which is proving genuine in point one, you saw that God's grace, great mercy in saving you, not by saving his son from evil and suffering, secures your salvation. Now you have a living hope and embracing secularism, a worldview and a lifestyle that does not account for the existence of God in Jesus is a dead hope. The secular life is the truly joyless life. God has great mercy towards you because withheld mercy from Jesus. That's the basis of a Christian's joy. Joy is the experience of a happiness that is eternal. Therefore, a secular person, especially on social media, right? They can look happy. They can look joyful. They can look full of joy, great life on the outside. And then two weeks later, they can commit suicide. Two weeks later, they can leave their family because they're dead on the inside. Because the basis of their joy are in things that are not eternal. A Christian, on the other hand, we can look miserable. We can look sad. We can look sorrowful on the outside. But make no mistake, there is a joy that wells up inside of us. It doesn't matter if mom died or you lost your house or you lost your basset hound or people just keep getting sick and dying in your life. There's a joy that wells up. Miserable on the outside, but joy on the inside. Why? Because the basis of our joy is in something that is an eternal and not temporary. As a Christian, therefore, we don't put our joy in our stuff. We don't put our joy in our prosperity as Americans. And we also don't put our joy in the basis of our joy in our adversity. That's kind of a duh. Our joy is in Jesus, who took on flesh to eradicate evil and suffering. And this joy can be experienced in both prosperity and adversity. Let's keep reading our text. Verses 6 through 7, Peter says, all right. It is in this, what we just went through, that's our joy. That in this, we can greatly rejoice. Even for this little while, if necessary, we've been distressed by various trials. Why? So the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see the call? Do you see the command? Peter calls Christians to greatly rejoice. Mega keron, mega joy. And this call exists in both prosperity and adversity. But the Western American mindset is joy and prosperity, sadness and adversity, right? That's what we're taught. When life is going good, you can be happy. When life isn't going so well, you're doing something wrong. 
We have to ask, what joy is there in adversity, right? I've got to clarify this. As we experience adversity, we already know that Jesus already died to destroy what Satan would do to you and to me in adversity. That's square one of our joy. Peter says that being distressed and experiencing trials is necessary. Do you see that? There's a condition for its necessity. That's why there's an if there. And we have to get to that. We have to ask, why is being distressed, why is experiencing trials necessary? Dan McCarthy says something like this. He says that, that Jesus learned humanhood from his suffering. And the Christian learns Christhood from our suffering. Do you see that? What I want you to see is that there is a link between our suffering and Jesus' suffering. The only way that evil and suffering can be dealt with in a final sense, in a satisfactory sense, is if God, who created all things, is the most powerful being in this universe, can hold evil and suffering accountable. Right? Something the Supreme Court cannot do. God can only do this by taking on headfirst evil and suffering himself. Because only one thing is more powerful than evil and suffering. It's not an atomic bomb. And it's not the life coach on Instagram. It's the cross of Jesus. Mighty is the power of the cross. It can change a leopard's spots and wash you white as snow. Right? And this is why Jesus took on flesh. As a Christian... We learn Jesus by our suffering. Whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, suffering will reveal what you are currently trusting in. So it's a fact of life. Suffering reveals what you find your ultimate value in. Suffering will reveal what is your functional God, whether it's a bottle or the baby Jesus. Suffering is a fire. You put gold in a fire, and once it gets to a certain temperature, if it has any impurities in it, it will begin to bubble to the surface, right? Likewise, you put a person in a fire. Not literally, metaphorically. And after that fire, after that suffering, heats up to a certain temperature. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be weeks from now. But eventually, after that fire heats up, it will show us what that person is trusting in. It will show us whether they're just nominal or they're truly a Christian because suffering is a fire. It burned Jesus, and it revealed what Jesus trusted in, that though it didn't feel like it and though it didn't look like it on the cross, but his father would have mercy. And he did three days later, right? Suffering burned Jesus, and it revealed him to be our living hope. Faith must be tested by fire. Not for God's sake. He's already suffered the fire. But for your sake. Suffering will show you what your functional God is. Suffering will show you what you really love, what you truly value, what you really find ultimately meaningful in your life. Suffering will show you who or what is your functional God. Verse 8. Peter continues and says, So though you don't see him, you love him. And though you don't see him now, 
which implies you will see him one day. But believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So from first century Turkish Christians all the way to the 21st century, for Christians in Branchton, Florida, we all have one thing in common. None of us have seen Jesus. Despite any books that have won New York Times bestsellers. We don't put too much stock in New York Times bestsellers list, right? Despite not seeing him, any of us, we believe Jesus. Now this proves and this necessitates the supernatural work of God the Spirit in our lives. It also proves the supernatural nature of Jesus' death and resurrection. And suffering proves all of this. Though you have not seen Jesus, you love him. Suffering proves all of this. Though you have not seen Jesus, you trust him. Though you have not seen Jesus, he is your joy and your living hope. Verse 9, our final verse. We can see the end result here. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Suffering proves and moves the Christian along to a single end, a single outcome, which Peter calls the salvation of your soul. This is one of the reasons why here, every so often you hear me say that you are saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. And I make comments to that you're not actually saved yet. You get upset. We have the America revivalistic view of Christianity, that once you come forward at altar call, you're just saved, no matter what happens after that. The outcome at the end is salvation for your soul. And that should make us in awe and serious about our times together as a church family. Because this is just one small part that was going to help you to get to the end. Because Jesus says those who persevere to the end will be saved. Because God withheld salvation from Jesus at the cross, the Christian will experience salvation at the end. Suffering is a fire that heats up your life to show you whether you believe this or not. So now, like I said in the beginning, we're going to spend some time in application thinking about what suffering says about us. So let's get to our application. And for a moment, I want us to ponder what suffering proves about your faith. Just for a moment. Now, before we ponder what suffering proves about your faith, let us ponder what suffering reveals about Jesus. We must do this. So number one, Jesus' suffering proves that he is serious about destroying evil and suffering. Doesn't his suffering prove that? He is so serious, he is willing to die for it. So serious. And when Jesus returns again, in his first advent, evil Sin and suffering had a sting, according to Paul. And Jesus takes the stinger out of your suffering, your sins, your sorrows, out of evil, and he injects himself with it, and he dies. Because he's God, he lives again. That's first advent. But at his second advent, when he returns for a second time, he will fully destroy eternally all evil, Number two, Jesus' suffering proves that he is overwhelmingly for the church. I don't know how many times 
that I've heard from people, even in our little tiny church, in counseling moments where they feel like God is not for them. And I can read Romans 8. God is for you. Who can be against you? We could sing our God every single Sunday. And if our God is for us, then who can stand against us, right? And they still feel that God is against them. Jesus' suffering proves that he is overwhelmingly for the church. And I pray the Holy Spirit puts us in a different position to hear this. But the suffering that you experience, if you are a genuine Christian, can never mean that God is angry with you. That may be how earthly fathers treat their children, but that is not how God as our adopted father treats us. The, the breakdown is that we project onto the adopted fatherhood of God our experience of our mothers and fathers. That's a different issue than what the truth is. If you are a genuine Christian, God is never angry with you. God is angry at evil. God is angry with suffering. God is angry with sin. Much like a parent would be angry, should be angry, because we have some terrible parents, but much like a parent would be angry when someone sins against their child, and rightfully so, when their child sins against somebody else, God is angry when we experience evil and suffering and when we cause it in someone else's life. However, at the cross, Jesus took on the wrath of God for what we've done to others and for what they have done unto us. That's why Jesus commands us to pray this way, which we'll get to after Easter, I promise. Therefore, the suffering that you are experiencing is not the result of God's anger towards you. And once again, we can say that all day long, and we can sing it every single Sunday, but it must be the Holy Spirit that changes your perspective on this. God put his anger for the evil and suffering that you have caused onto Jesus instead of onto you. God is never angry with you because he emptied his anger out onto the Lord Jesus. Now, let's ponder what suffering proves about us. Number one, suffering shows whether you are a Christian or not. Suffering will show you whether you are nominal, Christian in name only, which is a huge disease in America's church in the West. Once again, Joni Erickson Tata says something glorious about suffering, and you, and you, have, to, you, have, you have to hear this and, and, and read it. She says, our natural response is to use our suffering as an excuse to sin against God, to be bitter against him, to be angry. But a supernatural response is to embrace the Lord who suffers in the midst of your suffering. Quadriplegic, little to no function of her body, several bouts of cancer, just said that. This woman knows suffering. She has persevered because Jesus, long before she fell and hit her head, took on what suffering and Satan would have done to her through that accident. She says the human response to suffering is that we use it as an excuse 
to sin against God, to be angry with him, to be bitter with him for why he's allowed this to happen to us. But she doesn't stop there. She gives us some hope, a living hope, right? There's a supernatural response to suffering that only the Holy Spirit can give. The genuine question, the genuine question, Christian is the only one who embraces Jesus in their suffering because the Christian knows that long before they ever first suffered, Jesus already suffered that suffering on the cross. The spirit of Jesus inside you causes you to experience this truth, that Jesus has already taken on the evil and suffering that you've done to people and what people have done to you. Second, suffering proves a person's character. Suffering proves whether you're growing into selfishness, you're curved in nature, in curvature say, as Martin Luther said, or whether you are growing into selflessness, Christ-centeredness. And only the Holy Spirit inside a person can use suffering to grow Christ-centered character in us. This is why suffering and evil is the greatest threat to secularism, not to Christianity. When a secular person suffers, it melts away everything that they put their happiness in. Because you put your happiness and your joy into your job and the money you earn, that job one day will go away. If you put your hope into your home, that home is deteriorating. It's made out of wood and block, right? If you put your hope in another flesh and blood human being that's not the Lord Jesus, they are going to pass one day. And if you make them the basis of your hope, when the fire comes, it's going to melt it away. But when a Christian suffers, yeah, we may have the job loss, we may lose the home, and we may lose the spouse. But the worst that it can do is just refine and demonstrate what the basis of our joy really is. And that's encouraging, right? That is the worst now that suffering can do to a Christian because Jesus took on everything else on the cross. Then thirdly, finally, Suffering proves your fellowship with Jesus. I share with you, there is a book I read, maybe my first three years of being pastor here. We're going through some difficult times at the church. I mean, it feels like all the time. Lots and lots of adversity just to try to preach the word. And I turned to a book in that year by a Sri Lankan pastor by the name of Heath Fernando. I shared a quote from him maybe like a month ago or so. And I want to bring him back into this. Because it, so, it was so encouraging for my soul just to keep persevering. So I know, like, some pastors here just lasted six months, and some lasted, like, eight years. And where was I going to fall in that spectrum? This book helped me. And Heath says this, Christ is a suffering Savior. And if we are to follow him or be like him, we must suffer like he did. <laughs> And by way of testimony and real example, do you remember when, if you were around, when Arash joined our church? He's in Tallahassee this weekend visiting his sister. But when Arash joined this church, do you remember that he shared his testimony with us? That's one thing that didn't happen before. Like, wide open door, anybody in, are they Christian, are they not? We don't know. They want to join, they just join the church. But about seven years ago, there was, there, there was a change that happened that you must hear the testimony of other supposed Christians. It's your job to play a part in the process. Are they nominal or are they genuine? The congregation has a job to play. So Arash 
shared his testimony with our church family. And he shared this idea that when he became a Christian, his life did not get better. It got infinitely worse. Right? Does this mean that God is angry with him? That God is against him? Because he's hurt? Because he's lost in this life? No. What it merely, not merely, what it supremely meant is that Arash's life was beginning to be identified with Jesus. Suffering proves that you're a Christian. Suffering proves your character. And suffering proves your growing fellowship with Jesus. And that's why you can rejoice today, right? Jesus accomplished all of this for you on the cross. So from the start of the Preston series, I told you that suffering has put the pause button on the mission of this church both as individual Christians and as Jesus' church in Branchton. Pain does that. Pain screams. Pain forces you to focus on itself over Jesus. It's the nature of pain. And I fear that this has happened to many people in our church. There's some of you need to look at your life five, six, seven, eight years ago, nine years ago. For some of you, I can speak beyond that and then think of it now. You need to do that. In our pain, we have shrunk back to just caring about ourselves, our people, our family. And for some of you, that does include our church family. And I'm not diminishing that. And I'm thankful for that. But our mission is more than that. And we're failing to live out the reason why Jesus suffered and died for us. Which is, as we clarified in our members meeting, is to be the hands and the feet of Jesus in this community. And the range of people that we come into contact with. Suffering has proved self-absorption and not Christ-centeredness. So we, we ask in this final moment before we pray, how, how do we come back? Or how did Peter come back? Right? We experience again what the cross means, that Jesus took on flesh to take on evil, to take on suffering that you've committed, the evil that you've committed, and the evil and suffering that's committed against you. This experience clarifies and reforms why you are alive today and what your mission is.